Hello and welcome to Mountain Talk Monday. I'm your host Kelly Haywood and I'm really excited to be in the studio today with Janie Beverly and Greta Sloan of the Big Sandy Community and Technical College and they are members of the diversity team and we're here today to talk about multiculturalism in Appalachia and a symposium on diversity and multiculturalism that they are having March the 30th beginning at 8:30 a.m. So welcome Janie and Greta. Thank you. Thank you. Well we'll start with what is diversity? Diversity is very broadly defined but we're talking about cultural heritage, culture, we're talking about ethnic background, racial makeup. We're talking also about groups such as the LGBTQ community and people with disabilities. We're talking about all the ways that we're different and working to find that common ground. We're looking at different groups of people that we might think are different from our particular way of life, but have been living among us for a long time. We want to talk about those groups and how they add to our overall culture here in Appalachia when they bring maybe their culture from another place, another way of life. Mindset. Mindset. Thinking styles. Yes. So that is our goal is to hopefully make our college aware and more responsive to those groups as well as just the general community. Uh, give them an opportunity to come in and actually hear some of our speakers and presenters and panelists talk about those differences and how they've experienced them in our Appalachian culture. So our country was founded on the principle that all people are created equal. Why should we be thinking about the differences? Why should we be looking at that question? I think it's more of a bringing people of differences to the table, carving out those places where they, they have a place, that they have a voice. We're acting upon their ideas, upon what they have to offer for us. And, you know, we, we're in a, in a position and in eastern Kentucky and in our region where we have some problems to solve social problems. Without those voices, we're not going to be as successful in approaching those, uh, attacking those problems, and uh, solving them for ourselves. And a lot of times those voices have not been at the table. Yes. They have not been invited, necessarily. And we just think as part of our diversity efforts that maybe we need to broaden our invitation to have a more holistic and collective approach to solving those problems and to enhance our overall way of life that includes everybody that lives among us. That's one of the things that I think higher education should always aim to do is to be more inclusive because we're, we're serving a very diverse population. And if we only target a very small population then we're not really being responsive to the, that collective groups of people that we really have a responsibility to hear from and to incorporate their thoughts, their ideas, their possible solutions. And that's the whole idea here is to make them feel more welcome to help us 
look at all of those possibilities. I think our overall aim, the idea or the embodiment of servant leadership, you know, and by serving our populations, by serving our constituencies, all of them, I mean, aiming and hoping and working to include them all. I think in that model is where we're going to find uh, our wisdom to move forward. Yeah, I definitely think that we're in a pretty unique time mm-hmm. with all of the attention that our region has been getting with the election of President Trump. I know we at WMMT have been contacted by multiple national media outlets to offer explanation as to why the folks here would vote for Donald Trump. And a lot of it has to do with diversity and has to do with looking at the needs of a diverse group of people and how, if we're doing that, we could have then voted the way that we did. Also, we're in a really interesting time because a white supremacist group has chosen Jenny Wiley State Park, which is in the same town as your your college, Mm -hmm. and Pikeville, in order to hold rallies and workshops. And one of the reasons they said they did so is because we're 90-some percent white. That leads me to the question, how diverse are we here? When we look at our modern history of coal camp towns, and we look at that makeup, we are searching for facts, right? I mean, as academics, we're searching for truth and wisdom and facts. So when you go back to the turn of the 20th century, 1910s, 1920s, you're going to see in the coal camp towns the demographics were far more diverse then than they are today in 2017 in eastern Kentucky. So the assumption is that we're all white, that we're all homogenized. That is not our heritage. That is not our our, uh, historical makeup. When we go back to the coal camp towns, we see Syrians, Italians, Jews, Albanians, Hungarians, Hungarians, Irish, the Irish, the Welsh, the Ulster Scots, as well as uh, I'm sure I'm Germans, I'm sure I'm leaving out a host, African Americans, of course, Mm -hmm. Native Americans. Also, we have lost identity. We've lost our knowledge of our racial backgrounds. So a lot of that manifests in our cultural and our culture, the way we do things our mindset, the way we approach our living, our daily lives. And so we have to trace back, I think, and as cliche as it may sound, we have to trace back to move forward because we have taken on and adopted a narrative from the 1960s that says, you're all white people. And we trusted that, and we believed what they were saying was true, when in fact, when we look back in our archives, we know better. And so... That's how I would begin to answer the question that that you pose. In terms of the white supremacy that is bubbling up to the surface, what I find in my student population, and and that's, that's where my heart is, what I find in my student population is that they are mortified, they are angry, they are becoming activists, and I love that. So what we see out of these extremes and these pol- this polarization that I, I will say the polarization that has come from the election and the current socio-political climate in this country is that people are rising up and they're learning and they're knowing and they're aligning with what they believe and they're acting on it. 
And when a country is doing that, there's hope. There's going to be progress. And so when I see the 20-year-old and, you know, all the hype about who millennials are, it is the antithesis of who they are as 20-year-olds in Appalachia. That makes me very proud. And just to piggyback on that information, we have Dr. Doug Cantrell, who is actually going to speak to our historical heritage in the coal camps. He has been doing research on this for years and years. He is professor of history from Elizabethtown Community and Technical College, and he's on our program for the uh, symposium on the 30th, and he's going to open us up with that history. He's going to talk about who we were at the turn of the century. How did we get here as far as our different backgrounds, where we came from, why we came. And that to me is an amazing history in and mm -hmm. of itself because if you look at some of the coal camp towns, Jenkins, I mean the diversity, especially the Italian population that was there, it's just amazing to think that we have lost that identity of where we really came from. We weren't hatched on a rock somewhere. We didn't just come out as just pure white people. Uh, we were actually born of many different cultures and many different ethnicities because when those people came to work in the mines and to work on the railroads, they stayed here. They made this their home. This part of the country became their home. We're still here. I mean, we're here in bits and pieces of our own ancestry. We're still here. And what I hope that we can do with this symposium as well is help to celebrate the fact that we are those people. We are still here. We still do have those different characteristics that made us some of the most sought-after people in the world to come to work here. You know, you can used to hear the stories of those people that were actually brought here because they were experts as artisans or as co-loaders or as whatever it was the coal companies were seeking at the time. Some of those groups of people possessed those skills and that's why they were here. And it's something to be proud of. It's something to embrace. It's something to say, I was part of that group of people that they acknowledged were fantastic engineers or fantastic coal loaders or unbelievable businessmen or women. And something that we need to look at is as not being ashamed of or not wanting to know where we came from because we have a lot to be proud of. I mean, Absolutely. And I think if, you know, if you just imagine, take a moment and just imagine walking through a coal camp town where you had all these languages that were being spoken. You had a community working together under with a common cause. So then you had different ethnicities. So that means you had different religions. You had Jews, you had Muslims, you had Christians all working together. We had that conquered. We had that in working order a hundred plus years ago in Appalachia. You know, and those are the stories that we want to voice. Those are the stories that say, wait a minute, the nation, perhaps the, the world has it wrong about us. What makes us so culturally unique is all of those characteristics coming together in this flurry in this rush that says Appalachia is just something different, difficult to define. 
even as someone who has lived here, grew up here, was born here, and, and came back to uh, be a part of this kind of renaissance that I think is just an incredible thing. And I think this moment in time is so poignant for us. And I have been walking into my classroom saying, do you know that Appalachia is a popular brand now? They don't know that. We're the last people to know that because we're here living, we're here doing what we do, we're here working to be our best. And the rest of the world, or the rest of the nation rather, is thinking, wow, that Appalachia thing, that's fascinating. You know, and so that's something that I really want to convey through the get-together. Our symposium is called the get-together. It's the first one, and our plans is that it's going to be annually. And that's what it is. It is a get-together in that common, most profound sense of people coming together, stopping and talking and saying, you know, look, who, who are we, what do we want, and where do we want to go? And so those are the things that I think higher education affords us. We have that luxury, I admit it, that I have that luxury, Janie and I, that we can say, let's put this together and let's get these people together and let's see what happens. There's a lot of richness there for me. I went on a tour of Portal 31 in Harlan County mm -hmm. and it was a really large deep mine at the turn of the century. And when they described what they had to do, because I think he said something like 14 different languages were spoken by the mm -hmm. men that worked in that mine and they would group them together by language group because it was so dangerous and they were responsible for one another they had to be able to communicate and then they had cross communication where they would have words that everyone understood so that they could then communicate crossways and it was just fascinating to think about. And I know my family came from other parts of Eastern Kentucky to work in the coal mines and they were part of this. So my grandmother, she's an amateur genealogist and mm -hmm. has our history traced all the way back to Europe on one side and then we're Native American as well. So, you know, I know that I'm Scots Irish, I'm German, I'm Cherokee, just those three things. And now with like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, you know, we can find out who we are, what we are. And in that identity, I think create a very rich and, mm -hmm. and vibrant community. I, I like that you bring up that it's important for us to remember and to know our past in order to move forward. Uh, so that we aren't repeating the same trends over and over and then learn what worked, what did go well. Because we did have some pretty vibrant cities yes. in the day and a much larger population than we do now. Today, I'm part of Generation X, so that dates me a little. But I know when I was in coming of age, becoming more aware of my surroundings and uh, where I fit into them in the 90s, early 90s, I remember being really optimistic and thinking racism won't be a thing for my kids. Racism won't be a thing when I'm an adult. We won't even have mm -hmm. to talk about it. I never really heard much in, in terms of discrimination against race. Now, however, I did not have any African-American children in my school. There were no Hispanic children in my school. There was one boy who was Israeli and one who was Filipino. 
and their fathers were doctors. And then there was one, I think he was from Iran, and they didn't stay. One of their families stayed, but they would come for a time and then leave. So we knew them as the doctor's kids. Otherwise, it was on a rare occasion that I saw someone who was not white. And I grew up here in Whitesburg. I remember being completely fascinated by the Civil War, the idea that we would have kept slaves and why, and then looking at the African-American culture. I was just really curious, and, and the only thing that I had to learn from was television, because you know, there was nobody I could ask. But my grandparents did have more experience uh, with African-American folks than I had. I feel like we've kind of went backwards a little bit. When I look at the people who are middle-aged now or of the age to have children, and I look at the bumper stickers on trucks and cars, and I'm like, what, what happened? Because I feel like we went backwards. So I'm wondering if you might have any insight. We started out as this rich, diverse, aware place. I don't think that that necessarily means that we got along with one another, but I, I'm aware that, that we were aware of one another. And obviously some of us stayed and we married each other, right? And created families together. But what do you think created the conditions that we're seeing today? Where I am seeing more racist stickers on cars and such as that. I think we can't assume that history is linear. There's progress, 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 progress. And when we study history at any time, we see steps forward, steps backwards. We can never negate that individual responsibility for social justice. I think that is one of the critical pieces. And for me, part of the answer to some of your questions that you just posed, because uh, that responsibility has to have constant movement and it has to be a deliberate movement and decision, the decision to be inclusive and to honor one another and to respect one another. Because I think everything that lives deserves respect, or that is a personal mantra of mine. And um, I think when we have identity crises, like we have faced and are facing in Eastern Kentucky, we have to pause and work to make our way through. And that has to be a lot of critical thinking, a lot of analysis, like we're doing here together, the three of us. And uh, that's, I think, where we find our, our action steps. But I think when we have an identity crisis, such as we have collectively, and that has to do with poverty, and you see addiction that comes out of poverty, we lose our way. And it's rekindling that, rekindling that curiosity and that fire that says this is something that we oppose, this is something that we cannot abide, and uh, we're going to move our, our region, our culture forward. Any time that a, a region's economics and their livelihood is threatened, in my own personal history, looking at observation, and I'm over the age of 60 now, so I've got some collective wisdom, uh, what I have seen sometimes is when a person's livelihood is threatened, Sometimes we resort to our less noble aspirations mm -hmm. about how we think about 
why we're losing our livelihood or why we are becoming more economically oppressed. And sometimes I think historically we have gone for those persons that we think may have been to blame for that. That somehow we've given them entitlement to certain things that we don't necessarily or some people don't necessarily think that they were entitled to. And so you get this this conversation if you're in the drugstore, if you're in the the grocery store, any of those places and you're hearing the conversation and you're hearing things like, well, you know, if if those people, whomever they're talking about at the time, collectively called those people, were not taking our jobs, if those people were not being given these services when we should be getting those services instead if those people were not here or those people are threatening us in some way. The idea of threat to livelihood and in our area in Appalachia, we've always had some fear or threat of that from somewhere, from some place, some, from some entity. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have a tendency sometimes to resort to that when we get threatened to look at not necessarily a specific group of people necessarily but a a way of trying to explain how we've come to be where we are and I'm not sure that those are always necessarily the reasons that we came to be where we are but it's easier sometimes I think to to look at those groups as being the source of the problem those groups, as they're called. It's the perception, right? Perception, the the perception. And we recently took our students to visit a mosque as part of our exposure for them to different uh, religions. And that's one of our our goals is to expose our students because they ask to be exposed. When we did a survey of our students, they asked to be exposed to different religions, worldviews, cultures, ethnicities, ways of life, those kinds of things. And when we did that, and you were talking about that the doctor's kids that made me think about that, probably 80% or over of the members of that mosque are actually our professional doctors and other professional people. And I'm looking around and I'm looking at my cardiologist is there. My neurologist is there. <laughs> my, you know, and you're, you're thinking and you're thinking about all of the care that those people have offered us. They have taken care of us for years. Come into this area when other people chose not to, for whatever reason, and they've provided an invaluable service to our health care. So as I'm looking around that room, and I'm thinking about that, and then I spot one of my mentors when I was a nurse years ago. She was an OBGYN uh, of Muslim faith, I never knew her face at the time that I was working with her, but I knew her values. And her values were to provide excellent care for her patients. And that was what I respected, was the fact that she was an excellent physician. She prided herself on giving excellent care to her patients. And to me, that was the thing that was the most value in that working relationship with her and the things that she taught me about that is what you do as a clinician. That is what you do as a nurse or a doctor. Your personal biases, and we all have them. All of us have them. 
but those things you put aside and you look for the care of this patient. And I learned that from her. Looking at our communities and looking at who's been in our communities, what have they done with us, on our behalf, uh, for us, beside us, and that the place I hope that we get to is to remember those things and not have a knee-jerk reaction to something that we may hear without giving it the personal test. What kind of relationship did I have with that person or with that group of people or what have my experiences been that maybe I can bring to this table and help people look at this maybe in a different way. It's education always that I think is the path forward. And that's what I was thinking. That's how I wanted to respond to all that you've said is, and I often say this, but it is, it is very important. So I keep continue to repeat myself is education is the modern day miracle. We think, you know, miracles, or I hear oftentimes miracles don't happen anymore. Where are the miracles? And whether you're thinking about some kind of sacred text that provides these uh, miraculous events or the small stuff. I just think about how that transformation occurs and how I witness and see that transformation, whether it is your degree-seeking education or your self-educating. The reading, uh, responding critically, and then synthesizing that information as it pertains to your context is the most essential thing and the most dutiful and responsible thing you can do. And I, I mean that, I think it's particularly important in, in Appalachia. We pride ourselves in the things that we know, in common sense and in face value, and yet we have fallen off that path that applies that. And so I think that that is something that we hope to awaken people to that in their own context. Hello, you're listening to Mountain Talk Monday, and I've been here with Janie Beverly and Greta Sloan, who are members of the diversity team at Big Sandy Community and Technical College. And we're here talking about diversity in Appalachia and the excitement around their first multicultural symposium called the Get Together that will be held on March 30th, beginning at 8.30 a.m., it's the first of its kind. They're hoping it will be an annual event. And we're really looking at diversity in Appalachia in a really interesting time for us. And we left off the conversation speaking about how people come to this region. If we see someone new, because our towns are so small, we can tell. <laughs> it's like we have this sense. If you're new, I know here, the first thing people ask is, why here? <laughs> How did you get here? How did you find us? Because I do think that we feel so isolated here sometimes. And a lot of us, if we travel outside of the state at all in our lifetime, don't travel outside of Appalachia. And if we see the ocean, it's usually South Carolina, you know, not that far from home. Mm -hmm. I know I've never seen the Mississippi River, and I've only seen the ocean twice as an adult person. I have some capability of travel. So I think about how we learn and how much it's changed in just my lifetime. Because in high school, we never used computers. I hand wrote all my papers. I didn't have to type them out. 
And in college, the internet was a new thing. Mm -hmm. So we had the computer labs and everyone was just really excited about these chat rooms where you could go in and talk to anybody anywhere. Right. And it was such a big deal. And then last night, something really, really interesting happened. I got a friend request on Facebook from a man in Uganda. And I thought, this is one of these scams. And then I looked, we had like seven mutual friends. I'm like, still has to be a scam. So I went and clicked on the mutual friends and it was all people I'd went to high school with. And I'm like, how do they know this man from Uganda? So I messaged them all. I'm like, who is this? And how do we know him? Mm -hmm. And he is a real person. And they did know him. And they've talked with him. And he runs an orphanage in Uganda. And he had just cold contacted people. A few of them had really looked into his mission there, helping the orphans, and had talked to the children. And he sends them pictures of things that are happening. And we were all talking how just almost miraculous it is that we could all know this person, having never met this person, and be a part of his really important work in his country, and then learn right. from him and exchange Absolutely. that back and forth. So we are in a time where we may not get to travel but we can know a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. One of our staff here just wrote an article for Bill Moyer, and he included one of our volunteer DJs, Red, who does one of the bluegrass shows, First Generation Bluegrass. And he's a staunch Republican. He is a big Trump supporter. He likes to be very active in political discussion. It's sometimes really fun to talk to him because you can have those debates and he'll still come back and shake your hand, you know, mm -hmm. even if you were viciously disagreeing or what have you. And, and I really love that. But he came in one day after another of our DJs had played a song from the musical Rent, which is about the AIDS crisis. Red comes in and he says, I think I know what LGB T means. He said, but what's this I and Q? <laughs> you know, and, and the fact that there's a generational difference there, and I know even in my lifetime we've added some letters to that lineup, right. you know, and, and we're coming to understand. And the fact that we create places in education and cultural centers where we can ask each other those questions and learn from one another. And so I noticed as you were describing to me some of the events that were going to be at the symposium that there would be an LGBTQ panel. Is that what it's going to be? And, and why did you feel that it was important to include? It includes the two persons that are from among that group, but it also includes two other students that are not. But we wanted to include that because that's a large group for our student population. We have students who are on our campuses who have fear and trepidation of the way that they're going to be perceived by other students. And we've had discussions with those students. And we want to give them that voice so that people can see them as people, identify them in the way that they identify themselves. 
you know, we have a student on campus who is transgender. She is not shy about talking about her journey in that process, and she's going to be part of that panel. But, but we have a lot of students who are going through as young adults, and a lot of times people don't really know who they are until they become young adults. And so a lot of our students are grappling with their gender identity, their sexual preference, all of those issues that young adults. And we can't ignore the fact that our students are looking into who they are, who they want to be, and how they become who they want to be. I mean, that's all part of education as well. It's all part of being able to give voice to this very important group of people, you know, that want to learn more about, are there other people like me? Can I talk to somebody who's like me? Is there something wrong with me? Do I need to be afraid? What am I going to experience in this process? And some of them have already experienced, you know, quite a bit of, discrimination, prejudice, the experiences that have not been positive experiences for them just because of their particular gender identity or how they actually define themselves in their roles. And so it's been a real eye-opening experience for me. I've been there at the college for 23 years and probably in the last, since 2009, I would say, have I seen more and more young people able to articulate and openly identify who they are and have an expectation as they should have an expectation that they will be treated fairly, responsibly, inclusively, and safely into our community college. We're both intentionally, specifically, community college educators. Community college involves the community. It's in the name. And so we serve a constituency or a group of people, a group of students who come from everywhere, who come from, come to us in every way. And we have this unique salad bowl and have people in our classrooms and on our campuses. And we are, it's our job to serve them. You know, and so I really very much see our role as that servant leader to say that again. And if we are not bringing everybody to the table, then we are not successful in our jobs. I mean, very specifically, pragmatically speaking, that's their right. They have that right to be there and to be heard. Regardless of what we may personally feel about an issue or about a group of people or or morally, how we may morally feel about what they're doing or how they're living their lives. Simply put, that's that part is not my business. That part is, my job is to help them. My job is to serve them. And so in that capacity, I feel as though we have everything to gain from them. I love, I love at this point in time that people are feeling freer because they're, they're, as crazy as it sounds, in, these, in this year of polarization, there's still, it leaves so much room then for people to be themselves. I think it's a time when people's ire, there's a good Appalachian term, a good Irish, Scottish term, when our ire is up, you know who you are, simply put. And people know who you are. So, and you can stand on that. You can stand on that all day long, as my grandpa would tell me. 
So I think it's it's truth. It's about finding truth and about finding personal truth. That is just so essential. And when we were coming out, driving over this morning, beautiful drive in our beautiful mountains, we were considering that, you know, diversity is really oftentimes a matter of life and death. It's a life or death situation. I don't think I could teach any longer if I felt like I had uh, not helped someone who's suicidal and prevent that. If I overlook that suicidal person, that would be such a tragedy, a personal tragedy for me. So those are the things I've come that have come to be my truth. I think about coming back, Janie, to what you were saying about the folks who come into the region to serve. I know Apple Shop, which is where WMMT is housed, will sometimes bring folks in, artists from outside of the region, multicultural artists. We're going to be having Pregonis come in and do Betsy soon to give our community opportunities to interact with other cultures. And we have doctors who come in to serve and bring their families. And I was at Food City the other day, and I caught this most beautiful flash of like bright, bright green. And I looked to see, what is that? Where's that coming from? And it was a woman in a sari. And it was the most beautiful color of green. And she was the only woman in the whole store dressed in a sari, which is the traditional Indian female attire. And I was thinking how much she stood out in that bright, bright green. And there was her family. And I could tell people were looking at them. It drew my eye because it's not something you see all the time and it was just really beautiful for one and i thought back as you were describing that sometimes as we're going into a place to serve folks who are in need we never know how they're going to react as attire is a choice i'm a heavily tattooed person and so in the summertime you know i don't have much of a choice but to show them when I go into a place as a professional, sometimes around here, folks are really surprised by who shows up and it being different than who they expected. So I think about as someone who also stands out in a crowd, mm -hmm. just how intimidating that can be. Mm -hmm. Because I'm always ready for the questions or for someone, they feel like they can grab you even. Like, mm -hmm. what is that? You mm -hmm. know, and they'll jerk your arm closer or things that they wouldn't do <laughs> to just anyone Normally else. to anyone else who's just a passerby. Yes, yes. Or just asking really personal and, and odd questions. I just think about this time when we can reframe the conversation mm -hmm. as to think sometimes when our own folks are leaving and choosing not to come home. We're having folks from other countries even coming in to serve us. I think one of the greatest tragedies that ever happened to our area is that we were made somewhere probably mid-60s in the war on poverty and that whole era to feel ashamed of who we were. And that was one of the greatest tragedies that ever I can speak of that happened to our region because we should never have been ashamed of who we were and reclaiming our sense of being proud of who we are 
and being proud of our heritage. And you were talking about your own Native American ancestry, being proud of who we were because my ancestry goes back Native American and African American all the way back to the western coast of Africa where my great-great-great-grandfather was brought as a slave to Pike County and given as a gift to a family, to a, this gentleman's daughter as a housekeeper and servant. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm actually impressed with the fact that I didn't know that for so many years, but I'm certainly not not ashamed. But I think that for many years, we were made to feel that we should be somehow ashamed that we were this mixture of, of Spanish and Syrian and people of darker color. I think the color thing really became a major issue in our our region because those colors were designated to mean certain things. I mean, there was there was a label that was put on those colors. We disenfranchised all kinds of groups of people mm-hmm. based on their colors. So people didn't want to identify with those colors. They might not be able to own property. They might not be able to be included in churches. They may have been totally ostracized as a result of their color. So we were made to feel that we should not embrace who we were. We could only embrace who we were to a certain acceptable extent. You know, if we were Scotch-Irish, well, they're basically white, right? (laughs) And freckled and redheaded, a lot of them. If our heritage was of persons of darker lineage, like the um, Jewish people or the Indian, Native American Indians, then that was something that was frowned upon. I can even remember when I was in grade school, there was this beautiful little girl in my class. She was just, to me, she was beautiful in every way because she was she was just a sweet nature child that was good to everybody in the class. She was just one of those kids that could just mix and mingle with any any group. But she looked, she had the features uh, of an African-American. And I have, to this day, do not know what her real race or races might have been. But I know as we grew older, more and more you could hear the, the talk behind her. I know there was a young man in our classroom that really, when we were in junior high, that when people started having little crushes and those kind of things on other people and he had a crush on her and I can remember one of my teachers scolding him that he could not have a crush on her because she was not his kind. Okay. No, never defined whose kind she was, but she was not his kind. And I remember that. I mean, it made an impression on me and I thought, what does that mean? I think I was graced with a mother who was way beyond her time and the way she accepted people. Anybody was accepted for who they were, not for what religion they belonged to, not for what race they came from, were born in, none of that mattered to her. She took you completely at face value. And I think a lot of Appalachian people do that. Until you give them something else, they will take you right where you are as a person. Any of those other things are not that important to them. It only becomes important when you do something that violates their trust in you. And my mother was very much that way. I mean, it it just really didn't matter to her 
any of those other things mattered not. It was who are you as an individual? What do you value? And who are you person to person? And that's what really meant something to her. And so it was very confusing for me as a young person when I would see things happen to people. And it was hard for me to explain it to myself as to why that happened. That was not the way we functioned at home. We didn't function like that. We were not allowed to make fun of each other no matter what. You just didn't do that. You didn't bully another child. You didn't call another child a name. I mean, you're great. You didn't have to worry about your teacher taking care of that. My mom took care of that. Uh, <laughs> you did not violate another person's space or their their rights or their property. You never went in someone's yard unless you were given permission. You never got in their refrigerator when you went in their home. You never went through their drawers unless they said it was okay. And most of the time, people did not. So you lived by a code of respect for one another and that respect is extended to just everybody in general there wasn't a disclaimer like okay we're not going to respect this group of people no you expect respect and you give respect to everybody until you have some reason to withhold that respect and I feel like I was really fortunate to have grown up that way and I know some people's experiences are very different from mine where they were taught to hate certain groups of people or certain types without really knowing them if they were identified as any part of a group then that group was shunned or you didn't talk to them or you didn't associate with them so you never really got to know more about them as people if you automatically shun somebody because they have tattoos you miss knowing a lot of really wonderful people that's the other part of the education piece is is knowing that just because a person looks different from you or didn't come from the same place, the same orientation, until you give them a chance to tell you who they are, you might want to reserve your judgment. That's, I think, what a smart person does. <laughs> I mean, that's what my mother did, and she was a very smart person. But I think sometimes people need to remember that. Get to know that person. Know more about them as a person before you just suddenly draw a conclusion that may or may not have any merit to it. You know, if you're curious about someone, I think it's a welcomed moment to say, you know, you are really fascinating to me. I'm really curious about you. Um, your tattoos, uh, tell me, talk to me about them, you know, because I'm just fascinated. I mean, I think that that is a pure comment and it's coming from a sincere place. And who wouldn't then be receptive to that? So I think that we misstep all the time and just with knee-jerk reactions instead of just saying what we truly mean to say or what's truly on our heart and in our on our minds. I'm from a unique situation that I come from missionaries to Appalachia. I'm in between, as Kratis Williams uh, coined, the father of Appalachian studies. He said uh, that in-betweenness, and that's how where I have lived, but being the daughter of and granddaughter of missionaries to Appalachia, and Native Appalachians, which were Native American and Scottish and similar uh, background as, as you two. But missionaries who grew to love, who absolutely fell in love with the people, fell in love with the place, studied the oddities, what, what they believed were oddities. And, and that was reciprocated too, because, you know, the, 
Appalachians thought they were, uh, here's another word, queer. They were just odd. They were peculiar. But they could laugh about it together. They could be friends. They could, they could be closer than oftentimes families are. Uh, when my grandfather passed away, he had lived in Appalachia for probably 60 years of his life. Someone said to me, said to the family at the funeral, you know, we were surprised that he, he didn't want to be buried at home. And it was like, my God, we are home. What are you talking about? You know, and it, 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 was, a, it was a shocking moment to some of my family members because it was like, there is no other home. You know, we're mountain people. We're from the mountains. We, okay, we didn't have the fortune of being born here, but you adopted us. We adopted you, and this is, of course, we want to be buried at home. There's a lot of rich history there, and there's pockets where this has always been happening and has been churning in Appalachia, and those aren't really written about very much. I'd like to see kind of the anti-textbook, the story that tells the real story, especially um, in particular about our people, about Appalachia and central Appalachia to be specific. Those pockets of enlightenment have always existed and I believe and I know without a shadow of a doubt will always exist. And an earlier comment you made about the election, the presidential election, that's what's not taken into account either. Those pockets of people that aren't being talked about in, in this way with this vibrancy that they have. I think a lot of what we've seen comes down to two things and it's our economic times here and being very protective yes. um, thinking about what does it mean if I have to leave home do I have the money to leave home and why did it end up this way and on top of that fear mm -hmm. and I think a lot of what we're seeing with the polarization and things that seem to be contrary to the values that we were raised with or deep questioning of who we are as a people come from this time. But I agree with you, Greta, that I think it's a huge opportunity for us moving forward. So before we end our show, let's talk just a little bit about what if someone wants to attend the symposium, what they should do, how they should go about that, and what they might see there. Okay, if they want to attend, we really need for them to RSVP to our uh, chair of our committee, and that's Bobby McCool. You can do that by just emailing him, bobby.mccool, two C's, little C, big C, at kctcs.edu. Especially if you wanted to bring like a group, we're hoping that maybe some of the schools or some of the other colleges maybe would bring groups and we need to know about those coming in because when we want to make sure that everyone is accommodated for seating that's why we're asking for folks to RSVP we want to have a good turnout we hope that people will come because we have Dr. Doug Cantrell like I said now let me talk a little bit about our keynote speaker our keynote speaker when we Greta was talking about people that come and stay and make tremendous contributions to our area. Our keynote speaker is John Rosenberg. And a lot of, of people know John Rosenberg as his former self as the leader of Appleread, which is Appalachian Research and Defense Fund, which is a legal aid program 
that he helped start in Kentucky when he came to Kentucky. But John was actually born in Germany during the time of the Nazi invasion of Holland. He and his family actually got out of Holland on the last boat coming to the United States. And we were so fortunate that he did because he has been a social activist. He has been a humanitarian and he has all these accolades and awards over the years that have been given to him to acknowledge his efforts. But I think John's real story is that his legacy is going to be the thousands of people whose lives he has enhanced through the work that he has done. Other people that we have on our program, of course, as I mentioned before, were Dr. Uh, Doug Cantrell. He's going to talk about the immigrants and the history of Himmlerville in uh, Martin County. They're in the process of trying to restore Himmler, who is a Hungarian immigrant, restore the Himmler Mansion in Martin County. There's a huge following of the Himmlerville project, folks. You know, I'm indebted to them for spreading the word and trying to get people to come to this event. Faculty and staff, speakers like Judy Howell, who recently visited Italy. And that's something that Greta needs to talk about. We do a study abroad program, which she also uh, is part of uh, the Global Learning Organization on our campus, where students are, are given an opportunity to go across the pond to other countries and look at what's going on in, in other cultures and other countries. Our, one of our students who graduated from Big Sandy, as well as Lindsey Wilson, he's going to talk about the destruction of Black Wall Street. And I think very, very few of us know, until he talked to me about that, I had no idea that we, as a nation, had actually bombed a city what was actually a suburb of Tulsa, Oklahoma, in 1921 because the African Americans there had built this unbelievable town that had thriving businesses, hospitals, uh, libraries, banks. They called it Black Wall Street. And when the race riots bro uh, broke out in Tulsa, um, it spread to that community of Greenwood, and we sent planes to bomb at that community because they were afraid that that community was going to be too successful. I've never heard of that. And actually, Jeff Green's research said, that, well, it was never even allowed to be printed in our U.S. history books or anything that had to do with that until like 1995 or 96. I think he said, and so I was like, I never, I never knew this. We have the panel that we talked about earlier, uh, four different students from four different walks of life. Ada Bermudez, who is the planetarium educator from the Hummel Planetarium at EKU, who's coming to talk about STEM for women, uh, how important it is to look at the opportunities and the challenges for women specifically. We have a lot of young women who are interested in you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics now. And she is a person here that can really speak to that. She's had a personal journey. A uh, Latina dancing will be a oh, dance performance yes. of uh, merengue. There will be uh, a conversation. Dr. Palmer is going to speak about Islam as a misunderstood religion. Japanese religions. Yes. Uh, a faculty member at the college has uh, spent, has lived in Japan and studied Japanese religions. So... That is also going to be uh, a part of our symposium. And he is such a wonderful presenter. He did this presentation for us last year. He, he's very enthusiastic, and he really keeps your attention 
is so bright and brings in aspects of the of that topic that you just really wouldn't imagine that someone even discuss. But he does he does that in such a way that you're almost hypnotized to hear him talk about it. Uh, I I really enjoyed his presentation when I heard him do that, and that's why I asked him to do it for a larger audience because we did it for the students just on the campus last year, and I thought. Oh, he really, other people really need to hear this. You know, the community at large, people that, uh, it, it's just such a pleasure to hear someone talk about something he knows so much about and uh, has personally experienced when he was living in Japan. So that's what's so cool is there's just... Uh, trying to support each other any way that we can yeah. with that programming. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a lot of fun, and I was really, really excited when I heard about it, because this is, if I hadn't been an English major, I would have been a history major, so, and I love sociology, I was really excited, and I think this is just the perfect time to have, and to begin this symposium for the college, so I congratulate you in getting it off the ground, and, and I hope it's well attended. I will include all of the information on WMMT's website, uh, how to contact and reserve seating for the symposium. Again, they would like for you to contact them and, and let them know how many you'll be bringing. And again, that's March the 30th at 8.30 a.m. is when it starts. And how long does it go? We're there for the, for the day until 4.30 that afternoon. Right, so it's a full day of really interesting <laughs> topics. I, I could imagine staying all day myself. So um, I want to thank you both for coming in. Um, I've been speaking with Janie Beverly and Greta Sloan from the Big Sandy Community and Technical College, and this has been Mountain Talk Monday. Thank you both for Thank you for having us.